This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the push is on to build drone swarm defenses. The Pentagon's money may not be going where its mouth is. And the end of the line coming for the director of the Defense Innovation Unit. It's Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. DOD may get orders to build its drone swarm defenses, and the Navy finishes a redo on an important piece of technology. John Harper's managing editor of Defense Scoop, Mark Pomerlo's a reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me, John. I start with you. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act would prescribe to what degree the Defense Department needs to look and prepare, look at and prepare for uh, drone defenses. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, Francis. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, text of the Senate Armed Services Committee version of the uh, 2023 NDAA uh, was released, and uh, it included a number of provisions. Uh, that would try to prod the Pentagon to accelerate its fielding of uh, new tech uh, to defeat swarms of drones. Often when people think of drones, you know, they think of predator type systems kind of flying, you know, alone. Um, but, uh, you know, the Defense Department and uh, other policymakers are worried that adversaries could deploy uh, large numbers of uh drones in a swarm fashion that could utilize uh, AI autonomy capabilities to operate in coordination. And that would, uh, you know, in many ways be a much more difficult uh, air defense challenge uh, for the Pentagon. So what lawmakers are hoping to do um, is to uh, prod the Pentagon to come up with a new strategy for addressing that threat um, and for fielding new systems or modifying current systems uh, to, to better position them to, uh, to defend U.S. assets, so whether they be U.S. military forces or uh, installations uh, against adversary drones that China or uh, other adversaries uh, might be developing. You write in this piece, the legislation would require the Pentagon leadership to conduct an assessment of the threats posed by drone swarms to DOD installations and deployed military forces. You mentioned China. You write an analysis of the use or potential use of swarms by adversaries, including China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and non-state actors, and an analysis of enabling technologies such as autonomy and machine learning. Maybe there's not a specific strategy document. I imagine there isn't if the SAS decided it needed to include this in this bill this year. But this is not something that the Pentagon's unaware of as a potential risk factor in warfare, right? Right, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's something uh, senior leaders have uh uh, definitely raised on a number of occasions, um, and they are, you know, working on these types of technologies, doing demonstrations of things like high-powered lasers, uh, high-powered microwaves uh, that could offer maybe a more cost-effective way of shooting down large numbers of small enemy drones than, say, firing something like a Patriot missile, uh, which could be much much more expensive and maybe not a, a cost-effective way. To deal with the threat and you know the pentagon uh, a few years ago set up uh, a counter uh, small uas office um, it's a joint effort you know across the military um, and they've been conducting these demonstrations including you know uh, in recent months um, and they have had you know engagements where you know these sort of prototype systems would engage multiple drones at once um, 
but you know, perhaps not on the scale that the Pentagon is concerned about. I mean, theoretically, you know, China or a, you know another adversary could deploy you know hundreds of these at once. So being able to shoot down a few, you know, at one time, while that's a you know a step forward, you know, it's not the ultimate solution. So lawmakers, you know, are hoping the Pentagon can uh, you know incorporate some of these you know more advanced capabilities that are being developed. Um, you know, either along with current systems or introducing and fielding new systems uh, to to deal with really large numbers uh, of drone swarms. I have learned from you and other colleagues in the defense reporting community over the years that what one side of the hill writes in an NDAA doesn't mean anything if the other side isn't paying attention to. Is the House Armed Services Committee paying attention to this issue? Absolutely. Uh, you know, in their report on their version of the NDAA, uh, you know, they noted the threat posed by drone swarms um, and included a number of provisions, um, including, you know, wanting the the army to uh, kind of lay out its vision for using potentially high powered microwaves, for example, um, to uh, to deal with the threat. So both sides uh, of the aisle and both chambers uh, in Congress are are cognizant of this issue and trying to make uh, improvements. Uh, what you know remains to be seen is exactly which provisions will make it into the final version of the NDAA. The House and the Senate, you know, have to go into conference and hash out kind of a compromised version. Uh, so it may be several months before we know exactly what Congress is going to be requiring DOD to do uh, to deal with this particular threat. But it's definitely something that I expect to see uh, in whatever final version of the 2023 NDA legislation uh, ends up with, um, you know, it's something that uh, I think has a, you know, a bipartisan consensus on something that needs to be addressed. It sounds like the final decision in that is several months away. A decision that took years to reach is a decision regarding the next generation jammer. Mark Pomelo, you're covering that. What is that jammer and where are we now? Welcome. Sure. Thanks, Francis. Uh, so uh, despite the, the name, uh, the next generation jammer is actually going to be three separate systems. It's uh, a leap ahead technology that's going to replace the legacy jammer, the ALQ-99. Essentially, this is going to be the Navy's premier aerial uh uh, electronic attack platform that will be mounted on uh, EA-18G growlers. Um, the way that the Navy has broken this program up is uh, within so-called bands of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, mid-band, low-band, and high-band. Now, the mid-band was awarded to Raytheon back in 2016, and uh, the story that you referenced is focused solely on the uh, low-band uh, uh, production and, and contract. Uh, L3 Harris was awarded that contract in uh, 2020. However, uh, its competitor, Northrop Grumman, filed a uh, protest with the Government Accountability Office, which alleged a, a potential conflict of interest. Uh, the, the GAO sided with uh, Northrop and uh, ensuing legal battles uh in, ensu in ensuing legal battles, rather, uh, L3 Harris filed suit in uh, the Court of Federal Claims. Um, now, where we're at is uh, all three parties, uh, L3 Harris, Northrop Grumman, and the Navy have agreed on a path forward. Essentially, they're going to actually uh, 
re-release an RFP and, and basically recompete the program. Uh, the Navy has said that now they expect an award in calendar year 23. So this has been about a five-year journey since the um, RFP for uh, uh, this 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 program here that we've had. Um, this is that was kind of the, the short end of, of the uh, of the story here, but this has been uh, a really complicated legal battle um, and, and a program that's uh, been going on for some time without any concrete uh, deliveries to the fleet so far. If there is a silver lining, though, in this dark cloud, it strikes me that I could draw it from this paragraph that you write. The Navy initially decided to undertake a dual track process in determining the award for the program issuing Northrop and L3 an opportunity to demonstrate existing technologies in 2018 to help inform the Navy on how to mature the program. They can now mature the program based on 2022 or 2023 technology instead of 2018 technology, or maybe am I a a little bit too much of an optimist, Mark? Sure. So, uh, there, from what I understand from, from talking to folks, is there uh, there was an uh, independent team that was going to actually review the requirements. So uh, currently, both companies are, are waiting on the Navy to kind of uh, chart forward a specific path and specific requirements. Now, it's possible that that independent review team will come back with the same requirements that was initially in the program, and each each program will or each company rather will uh, you know resubmit their old bids. Um, I suppose it's possible, as you alluded to, that um, given we're a few years down the road, that that there could be updated requirements or each company could have uh, uh, potentially new uh, bids that they want to produce. I think that's still kind of up in the air as we're we're waiting to see uh, what's going to come next from uh, from this effort. All right. More on both of those stories on fedscoop.com. Mark, what do you have ahead in the in the in the week that's coming for coverage? Sure. So uh, something that I think uh, our listeners will, will be interested in, um, U.S. Cyber Command is hosting their procurement forum on July 27th. Uh, this, this is kind of the follow on to their classified industry day, which is on June 14th. Um, we're, we're, folks are, are going to be able to hear from acquisition executives and get a little bit more fidelity on some of the acquisition efforts and priorities that, that Cyber Command has uh, upcoming. John Harper, what's in the week ahead for you? Uh, Assistant Secretary of the Army for uh, Acquisition Logistics and Technology, Doug Bush, is going to be briefing reporters on some of the uh, Army's uh, latest modernization and uh, acquisition efforts. Um, So I'm certainly going to be interested to hear about the optionally manned fighting vehicle, uh, robotic combat vehicles, Army software factories, uh, you know, some of the services uh, top priorities that uh, I'm expecting him to discuss uh, when he meets with reporters this week. John Harper, Mark Pomerlow, great reporting as always. Thanks both very much. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. The Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, Heidi Hsu, lists 14 technology areas as critical to national defense. The money the Pentagon spends on those areas, though, doesn't always appear to reflect that list. Tara Murphy-Doherty is Chief Executive Officer of Gavini. She's former Chief of Staff for Global Strategic Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Tara, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. I look at the key findings in your critical technologies taxonomy, and one of them is 
is that a lot of the money that's going for these technologies isn't in the Defense Department and it isn't necessarily going toward the things we would think it's going to. Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Really appreciate being here and very excited to talk about this year's National Security Scorecard. As you mentioned, it taxonomizes all U.S. federal spending across the spectrum of technologies that defense leaders, including the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, has said are vital to maintaining United States national security. Our taxonomy shows not just what DOD sets out to do in its budget plan, but what actually happens from a spending perspective. And I'm sure we'll dive into that more because I think that's a really important point. Yeah, what we ha- what happened in this time period that, that you're covering here, fiscal 2017, 2021, is COVID-19 and the impact that that had on spending across these critical technologies was what exactly, Tara? Well, it was huge to put it lightly. So if you look at total spending across these technologies from the time period that we evaluated, which was fiscal year 2017 to fiscal year 2021, overall spending nearly doubled. And that probably isn't surprising to a lot of people who listen to national security leaders talk about the importance of modernization, innovation, and investing in these technologies. And yet the point you make about where you see really big jumps in the spending is exactly right, Francis, because by far the segment that had the largest increase overall over this time period was in biotechnology. And the vast majority of that spending is actually related to COVID treatments, research, and purchasing the vaccines themselves. I note that in the biotechnology sector, vast majority of the spending outside the Defense Department, within the department, an overwhelming majority of that money was spent by the Army. Do we know what that means? Yeah, we dug into that a little bit because it was a surprising finding. And essentially, when you look at the data, what it shows is that the Army became the contracting office for the U.S. national response to the COVID pandemic. And interestingly, when you go a little bit further and you look not just at who's spending the money, what that money is going toward, but also which companies are benefiting from it, we saw AstraZeneca among the top vendors in this space, amid also what you would expect Pfizer, Moderna, others. But what it shows is that the U.S. response and this significant level of spending was in fact focused first on the American people, but then was also international in nature as well. One of the areas that I expected to see increases and I saw decreases in your research, space technology, the only segment you write that didn't see an increase in yearly spending levels, um, flat in FY21 compared to FY17. What's under the hood there, given the emphasis that the uh, military has placed all across the department in space and particularly with the stand-up of the Space Force. Absolutely. The stand-up of the Space Force, the rhetoric of the previous administration around increasing activities in space is really in stark contrast to what we see, which not only is overall an essentially flat number over a five-year time period, but a notable decrease of 8.5% specifically in the launch vehicle subsegment of space technologies. So there are a few things going on. One is it's a great example that 
reality doesn't always live up to rhetoric. And then secondarily, this is likely an area where we see uh, investment, particularly within the R&D side, that's happening in the commercial sector more than being funded by government. Or I should probably more correctly say, in addition to what's being funded by the government and the launch vehicle subsegments, perfect example of that. Yeah, you're right regarding that. An eight and a half percent decrease in the launch vehicle subsegment may reflect a shift toward greater reliance on commercial space launch. And a, a number of leaders across the military, uniformed and civilian, have said that that's something that they expect to see. What's the potential implication of that for looking at spending moving forward? Is there, or is there a way to even predict that, Tara? Absolutely. We think based on the data means that prices are actually going to continue to go down for agencies like DOD and NASA that fund these activities. We saw companies such as Blue Origin and SpaceX rise to the levels of Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman in being recipients of defense contracting dollars and NASA contracting dollars for space activities. So, Overall, I actually think this is a really good news story on collaboration between innovative American companies and what needs to happen in the national security sector. Especially when you consider where we were at the beginning of the scope of your work in fiscal 17, we were still reliant to some degree on Russian launch providers for the International Space Station and others. So the fact that that capability now is within the borders of the United States must be nothing but a good thing. Now, one area where we haven't seen that yet that you write about is microchip production. Um, you write yearly USG spending on semiconductor fabrication declined in the 17 to 21 period. What's What do we know about what that means and what the potential for, for change there is legislatively, production capability-wise, and so on, Tara? Well, those points that you make, including actually about the International Space Station and the importance of investments and focus there, as well as semiconductor investment, really shows how relevant this analysis is to everything happening currently. So we just saw as of this morning that Russia's walking away from the ISS, plans to invest in their own system and space station in the future. Um, and so those investments become even more important to not just our national security, but frankly, how we think about norms of behavior in space and the overall paradigm and world order as it relates to space activities. On the semiconductor side, also, we're just seeing what seems to be a glimmer of hope that the CHIPS Act will finally be passed in some form. Uh, I think there's extreme bipartisan support for activity you know, some level of action there. And that that's good news. This data demonstrating that there has not actually been an, an increase in investment in the semiconductor fabrication space over the past five years really is a, I think, warning call to everyone who is thinking about or hemming and hawing to, about this issue. We, need, we know we need action, and again, I think the data demonstrates that the reality of dollars that go out the door in these areas, there's room for a lot of improvement, not just in terms of what we seek from a national policy perspective and a national security perspective, but in comparison to some of our strategic competitors. You talked about what we might be able to infer from this data about what's ahead for space. 
more broadly across all of the sectors that you write about here? What is there anything we can infer about the future? Is there a way to anticipate trends using this data and then applying what we know about what Congress is looking at, for example, in this year's NDAA? Uh, or what the appropriations uh, people in Congress are thinking about the way that they'll direct money for this coming fiscal year and the way they're thinking about the future, Tara. Absolutely. And I actually think the two views are very similar or the two observations in terms of what we see in the data, what it tells us about the future and what we see in Congress and the executive branch. And that is that it is one thing to put out very bullish projections about American R&D investments, about defense innovation efforts, and it is a whole nother thing to actually resource that strategy. So on the appropriation side, for example, we've had a couple of years now where leaders are out there, uh, you know, uh, lauding what they're say, describing as historically large R&D budgets. And indeed they are. You know, the defense RDT&E portfolio in FY22 and then again in the FY23 president's budget request were the largest to date. But when you look at those numbers as a percentage of the overall defense budget, it's a very minimal increase. And so there's not actually a notable uh, rise in the portion of money that we're putting into investing in these technologies. That's exactly what you see as you look at this taxonomy and the breakdown of spending. Again, dollars out the door over the past five years, it's a very moderate linear increase. And there might be nothing wrong with that, but that's the data that defense leaders need and national security experts need and Americans need in order to say, is that actually enough? Will that help America keep pace with our strategic competitors who we know are spending large amounts of money in these same areas? And indeed, will it be enough to maintain American primacy fundamentally now and in the future? Tara Murphy-Doherty, it's always wonderful to have you on the program. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to the research Tara talked about in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see a lineup for the rest of the stars that are coming, and you can sign up for it through a link in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. One of the Defense Department's newest job postings is a big one. The head of the Defense Innovation Unit, Michael Brown, will leave his job as director of DIU in September. In part two of this conversation with Defense Group's Brandy Vincent, he tells her about technologies the department's fielded out of work that started at DIU. Uh, what we've done with small drones certainly would be up there. So uh, we have a program called Blue UAS, which is about how do we field more drones from U.S. and allied uh, companies? Particularly important because China has the jump here with the world's largest market share of small drones. So being able to harmonize some requirements across the military and provide those on the GSA schedule so that uh, across the federal government, other parts uh, of the government can buy these cyber-hardened qualified drones uh, and support U.S. and allied suppliers, critically important. The satellite imagery is a combination of what we've done for rocket launch as a service. 
So we've pioneered the concept that we don't have to build our own rockets uh, in the military. Uh, we can basically buy payload space. Uh, so launches a service, the small satellites we talked about, not only with SAR, uh, but also as we look to other sensors that we're working on right now, and then some of the analytics so that we don't have to have our, uh, you know, uh, special analysts looking at all the pixels, but uh, using analytics so that they can just be looking at the changes and trying to understand that, put a better picture together. Lots of AI projects to bring sensor fusion together, like giving uh, NORAD, NORTHCOM, a better picture of the uh, airspace over North America and being able to uh, give the president more time should he ever have to make a decision about what's happening over airspace and whether we need to respond. We've dramatically reduced the amount of time that it takes to understand what's going on and correlate different uh, sensors. The project we just mentioned on tactical vehicle hybridization, how do we save energy with all of the Army vehicles, Humvees, joint light tactical vehicle, I'd uh, point to that. We're doing a project to standardize across batteries so we can provide higher density batteries and standardize on the many, many batteries that uh, we need across the military. Uh, using digital wearables to give better indications of health. So I'm wearing a, a commercial digital watch and an, uh, or a ring. We've worked with Philips Healthcare to uh, combine that data for individuals like myself getting hundreds of data points and using that we could detect COVID uh, in our military up to uh, 72 hours in advance of my ever feeling a symptom with 75% accuracy. So a completely new way to change the game on readiness, not just is the equipment ready, am I trained on the equipment, but am I ready as a, as a human? Uh, I'll just stop there. There's so many examples. I'm so proud of the work that we've done at DIU. In your last few months leading DIU, what are your main priorities? Yeah, pretty easy. Uh, one is to give uh, uh, the visibility I can to the ideas that we've talked about uh, that uh, we feel can really move defense modernization forward, which is the head strategy we talked about a moment ago, fast follower strategy. So what can we do? Because we know commercial technology to be increasingly important. What can we do to make sure we are putting in the, the processes so we could move even faster? Second would be making sure DIU has the resources it needs. This has been focused on the budget, but it's also billets, the people that we need. Uh, we have uh, an ever-increasing demand for what we do. We have 95 projects underway at DIU uh, right now. So making sure that we have the resources to be able to continue to meet the needs of DOD and the expectations of Congress is the second priority. And the third is helping individuals. So whatever I can do in my last uh, weeks to help the uh, service members, making sure their performance reviews are done, whatever we can do for promotion boards, uh, any assistance I can provide people given my commercial experience, my whole career in uh, Silicon Valley before leading DIU uh, with career advice. So th those are the three priorities I have. What's next for you? <laughs> well, I'd love to do, uh, I want to continue in the same uh, uh, area of national security and technology. I think it's uh, a nexus that's going to be uh, increasingly important as we look out over the next couple of decades. We already talked in this interview about how I believe commercial technology is going to be changing war fighting. So what can I do as I reflect on that and think about what improvements we could make from outside the department? So I've agreed with um, uh, the Hoover Institute at Stanford to be a visiting scholar next year. And I'm looking forward to spending some time doing some thinking, working with some of the great people uh, there, including H.R. Uh, McMaster, 
uh, Condi Rice, uh, General Mattis, uh, on uh, what uh, can we do to uh, make sure that we've got the be absolute best for our warfighter? What can I do from the standpoint of writing about that and uh, contributing to some of the conversations being outside the government? We saw DIUX evolve to DIU. And for people who aren't really watching the space like I am, we've seen sort of the development of the CDAO and sort of some evolution there. How do you think DIU will level up in the coming years or how should it? Well, I think a couple of uh, areas. One is uh, we want to make sure that we're creating a much closer connection between what we're doing at DIU and mainstream acquisition. So I really think all of the program executive offices, and, and we're now engaged in some meetings where we're meeting with all of the program executive offices for each service. I'd love for each one of those uh, PEO leaders, as they think about their acquisition strategy, to turn to the commercial market first. Because most of the problems that we have to solve in the military, except for the very last step, which could be some kinetic action blowing something up, are issues that the commercial world is facing. How do we make sure our systems are cyber hardened? How do we make sure we're fusing sensors? If we're looking at images, how do we use computer vision to be able to do that more effectively and uh, faster? So all of these problems are being solved by the commercial world, frankly, in much bigger volumes. Industries we've invented like semiconductors, we're now a small part of, we're one to 2% of the uh, purchases of semiconductors around the world. So we're participating in industries in some cases that we've created, uh, but just as a regular customer. So we need to make sure that uh, we are connecting what we're uh, doing in the military to all of that incredible commercial activity that's happening around us. Uh, that's a little bit different than what the Defense Department faced as a challenge 60 years ago when we were inventing more of the technology that we were using. So I think there are ways to connect the activity we're doing at DIU to the mainstream of what's happening in procurement. The next area is with we can have an outsized influence on the $350 billion that's being spent by venture capitalists each year. Not that all of that's gonna be focused on national security needs, but a good portion of it has applicability for national security needs. What's being invested in AI or cyber or small drones as examples. Uh, I'd love to see much more of an outreach to provide those venture capitalists and entrepreneurs with market signals about what we're gonna need, types of capabilities, quantities of what we would need, and then we need to be reinforcing that with more and larger production volume contracts. Some of what DIU is doing is providing that today. The 100 vendors we've introduced at DIU uh, have $3.7 billion of follow-on revenue, but that's not very much relative to what DOD buys. That should be a $37 billion number. A uh, good example, Andrel, a counter UAS uh, supplier, a, a system that they provided for counter drones, uh, just got a billion dollar follow-on contract from uh, Special Operations uh, or Special Forces Command. Uh, one of the vendors we brought in C3 that did predictive maintenance for aircraft. How do we predict what our unscheduled maintenance is going to be and, and fix planes before uh, parts go out? They just want a half billion dollar follow-on contract from the Missile Defense Agency because their platform can pre uh, provide synthetic trajectories of hypersonic missiles so we know better how to defend against those. So those are some examples of where we are providing large uh, follow-on production contracts, but this needs to be a much bigger story. So we reinforce that. And I'll just finish with the third element of where DIU can scale with allies and partners. 
Uh, we're being asked to support the AUKUS initiative, which I'm pleased about. We could be going much faster there. I would love to see DIU working with all of our uh, allied companies so that they're participating in DIU solicitations or projects. So we're getting the best of technology available globally, not just what's available in the US to support our warfighters. And when we qualify a vendor, and maybe that can be a Australian or UK or Canadian vendor, that should be available as a qualified solution to all allied militaries, just as the US companies we've qualified should be available to those militaries as well. So think about what that would do to both get us better technology globally, but also provide incredible export opportunities for the companies that we qualify. Just three examples of where we could really scale up. Absolutely, super important. Um, I know we're running out of time. One more question. Um, it's a little tough, but it's also, I think, really important. You did encounter just a little bit of drama around allegations uh, of conflict of interest in your tenure. I'm curious how that affected your work at DIU, if at all, and more broadly, how do you hope to be remembered for your time at DIU? What do you want your legacy to be? You know, the uh, allegations made by one former employee is that uh, we misused our hiring authority. Uh, so uh, I have complete confidence that uh, those are going to be resolved uh, positively. But unfortunately, uh, the inspector general takes a very long time. So those allegations came over a year ago. Uh, I still don't know when the inspector general is going to complete their work, but I'm looking forward to it being completed so that we can uh, put this uh, behind us. But I have confidence that, uh, you know, we've done everything at DIU uh, according to the way we should have. I don't have any qualms about uh, what, what they might be finding in their, their work. Uh, what I like to be remembered for is we've taken the concept that Ash Carter had about how can we build a better bridge between the commercial world and the military and how can we make sure that's a much bigger factor for DOD's modernization and bringing DOD better capability. I think we've shown we can scale that. We're bringing in a hundred new vendors 50 capabilities that have transitioned, meaning they're in warfighters' hands. We have 97 projects underway right now. So we've shown that this can scale. It's not just a concept that you can do as a one-off. We can scale us and really make a difference. We talked earlier in the interview about some of the capabilities that we've brought. So I'm excited about what that can bring to the warfighter. I think commercial technology can be increasingly important. So I think our showing the way here is gonna be very important as laying the foundation for a future where the military's much more successful in adopting these new capabilities. And that gives us the ability to do it so much faster than when we have to invent something ourselves. So bringing capabilities in one to two years instead of one to two decades to our warfighters. Mike Brown, the outgoing director of the Defense Innovation Unit with Defense Scoop's Brandy Vincent. You can read more in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. And if you missed part one of this conversation, you can listen in the archives at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the program, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.